You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Are you into the secret histories of exorcisms, Christmas massacres, killdozers, and concert disasters? How about haunted mansions, the Philadelphia Experiment, the Dorm of Death, or candy corn? Then you're going to love Ghost Town, a hilarious and sometimes not so hilarious twice-weekly podcast. On Wednesdays, we discuss the secret history of an abandoned, unexplored, haunted, or mysterious place from anywhere in the world. And on Fridays, we cover an amazing historical failure from any time in history. Ghost Town is 100% safe and legal. We guarantee it. It's also fun, spooky, and can contain a riot, a massacre, a murder, or an arch deluxe. I'm Rebecca Lieb. I'm Jason Horton. And and this this is Ghost Town. Town. And you can find Ghost Town wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome. This is the Fresh Hell Podcast. I'm Annie. And I'm Johanna. And you just heard Rebecca and Jason from Ghost Town. They talk about haunted places like hotels, amusement parks, or like crime scenes. If that sounds like something up your alley, just head on over to their podcast and give them a listen. Oh, yeah. Annie, apropos amusement parks, don't you have something about that on your topic list as well? I do. So I'm working on an episode all about amusement park tragedies, disasters. I'm not sure what to call it yet. But since all the amusement parks are closed right now, I feel like this is a good time. I don't have to worry. I'll put anyone off their, you know, planned trip to Disney World. And I'm definitely going to check out that podcast. Is there anything else we need to talk about before we get going? Yes. First of all, I want to welcome all of our new subscribers. I noticed that while people might not be in the right headspace at the moment for true crime, we did get a lot of new subscribers. And my guess is that you saved us for a later time. So if you're listening to this in a couple of weeks, welcome. See, we got through this. We did it. (laughs) We love to have you here with us. Definitely. And another thing I want to mention, we got a lovely review from Sweden by Berit Bofink. Hey, Hurmardu. I hope I didn't botch it completely now. (laughs) And they mentioned that they wished we would have a web page so that uh, users or listeners without Facebook could go and look at all the photos. We do have a page at www.freshhellpodcast.com and there you can find all the links to our sources. We cannot share most photos on our page due to copyright issues and that's why we always prefer to post the links to to all the the articles, to all the photos in our closed Facebook group. So yeah, that's the reason why. Any something you want to mention? Oh, yes. So we received a message from a listener asking us to please add sexual assault and rape to our trigger warnings in the beginning. We always tried to add those warnings, and we're very sorry if we forgot to mention them in some of our episodes. Uh, We do try to be mindful about those warnings, and we will definitely be more cautious about it from now on. So thank you very much for that email. There is no sexual assault of any kind in today's story. I was actually trying to find a topic that wouldn't just stress everyone out more. And since almost no one is flying, I thought we would discuss a hijacking because we haven't done one before. But this is also not the story of a passenger plane. In today's episode, we are going to talk about a FedEx cargo plane, which might not sound very exciting, but I promise it's it's a really incredible story of survival and skill. 
personally do dig airplane crash and hijacking stories ever since I was a flight attendant. Of course, especially the ones where people survived due to skilled pilots or through unbelievable survival skills. Mm -hmm. So I'm all here for it. And yes, I have to agree. It's, it's a bit hard right now to come up with topics that won't bum us all out even more. But Annie, I think you made a great choice here. I'm, I can't wait to hear what you're going to tell us. Good, good, good. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about the hijacking first, and then afterward we will chat a bit. So if you're a listener who hates the chatty part, you can skip it at the end when we're done, which is how we usually try to do things. Sounds good to me. Any warnings? I'll be talking about a pretty amazing fight and some graphic injuries, but uh, that's about it. Sort of pg Okay, I'm going to start with a quote straight from my new best friend, Wikipedia, about what <laughs> FedEx is. Because <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to come up with my own. It's Let me tell you about FedEx. All right, from Wikipedia. FedEx Corporation is an American multinational delivery service company headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee. The name FedEx is an abbreviation of the name of the company's original air division, Federal Express, which is now FedEx Express, <laughs> which was used from 1973 until 2000. The company is known for its overnight shipping service and pioneering a system that could track packages and provide real-time updates on package location, a feature that has now been implemented by most other carrier services, end quote. So yeah, they're, they're a mail company and they're sort of a pioneering private mail company. Also, if you didn't know, there's an arrow in the logo. If you look at the X part of the FedEx logo, yeah, I was shocked when I, when I learned about that. Not that long ago, actually. Um, I'm not sure what you mean exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so I'll post a photo, but if you look at the bottom of the E and the left side of the X in the word X, there's an arrow pointing to the right. And once you see it, it's it's kind of hard to unsee. I'll post a photo of it so um, you'll know what I'm talking about. All right, so FedEx is just a giant shipping company, and it's no surprise that they own a fleet of aircraft in order to ensure that all those overnight deliveries are made on time. Now I'm going to talk to you about planes. My husband is actually really into planes, but most of this information I also got from Wikipedia because planes. All right. <laughs> it's not, you know what I mean? It's like, we need to know a little bit about the plane and about FedEx, but it's not the main. They're, they're supporting, supporting roles. So the plane was a wide-body DC-10. It was McDonnell Douglas's first commercial plane after the 1967 merger between McDonnell Aircraft Corporation and Douglas Aircraft Company. The DC-10 was powered by three turbofan engines. So two engines are mounted to the bottom of the wings, which you see often if you imagine just your run-of-the-mill commercial airliner. And then on this plane, there's a third engine mounted at the top of the rear of the plane. It was designed for medium to long-range flights that could accommodate 250 to 380 passengers. And it was operated by a cockpit flight crew of three, two pilots and an engineer. And these are the planes that would be set up uh, where there's two main aisles. So it'd be like two two seats, then four or five in the middle, and then another two by the other window. So these are large planes. Did you ever work on any of these larger planes? Uh, well, I only worked on Canada regional jets and Boeing. And Boeing, I was on the 737. And then long range flights would be 767 and 777. So the 777-200. I think that one had like 310 to 320 passenger back then. I don't know exactly the seating capacity we had. I have mm. to admit it's too long ago. But yeah, that one was my favorite. 
Weirdly enough, I also really like to fly the, the Canada regional jet that could hold 50 passengers maximum. It was tiny and I was almost too tall to work it, but it was it was just pretty lovely to work on. The service was nice, the flight crews were nice. I once had to sleep in a in a Canada regional jet in a sleeping bag I had to bring with me from home. <laughs> what? Because we used to have overnights in Timisoara and we didn't have a crew hotel. So it was like <sighs> a, you know, airplane crew slumber party. <laughs> Fun times. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but back to your FedEx plane. Oh, see, I regret not doing something like that right out of college just to travel. So, oh, all right. So um, let's get back to this fascinating plane-centric Wikipedia article about the DC-10. The plane has retractable tricycle landing gear. In order to enable higher weights, the later 30 and 40 series have additional two-wheel main landing gear, which retracts into the center of the fuselage. And that's the kind of plane that we're talking about today. It's a DC-1030. So it was a long-range model and the most common model produced. It was built with General Electric CF6 50 turbofan engines and had a larger fuel tanks to increase their range and fuel efficiency, as well as a set of rear center landing gear to support that increased weight. All right. Thanks to Wikipedia for that info. Hopefully I've conveyed <laughs> that this was a big plane. Uh, yeah, I can picture them. Okay. Sadly, there were a lot of problems with the plane's design right from the beginning. In an article for the BBC News, Tom Richardson writes, quote, In 1974, a Turkish Airlines DC-10 crashed 10 minutes after taking off from Paris, killing 346 people. Modifications to all DC-10 cargo doors were ordered by the U.S. Federal Aviation Authority, the FAA. On May 25, 1979, 271 people died when an American Airlines DC-10 crashed just after takeoff in Chicago. A short circuit maintenance procedure which damaged hydraulic lines was identified as the cause. Six days later, the plane's poor safety reputation led the FAA to temporarily ground the aircraft while manufacturer McDonnell Douglas addressed issues with the plane's design, end quote. I think that Chicago crash in 1979 remains the most deadly aviation disaster on American soil to date. Even after it returned to the air, there were other high-profile incidents involving the DC-10, and I am going to talk about one of them today. But... Interestingly, I'm not going to tell you a sad story of a fatal design flaw. That might have been what you were expecting, but it's actually quite the opposite. This is the story of a plane with a seriously problematic safety record that defied all the odds and performed in a manner it was never designed to, and how it helped to save the lives of its crew. All right, so April 7th, 1994 was a clear, cool day in Memphis. It was a perfect flying day. Ace of bases hit earworm, the sign, was inescapable. I was a month away from my 17th birthday, and flight 705, full of computer parts, was scheduled to leave the FedEx hub in Memphis, bound for San Jose in Silicon Valley in California. Thank you. You just had to put that earworm in my head now, right? <laughs> I did, sorry. It's been in mine for like a week, and Miserly loves company, so <laughs> yeah. Uh, the flight crew that day consisted of 49-year-old Captain David Sanders, 42-year-old First Officer Jim Tucker, and 39-year-old Flight Engineer Andy Peterson. The name of the aircraft was John Peter Jr. I'm sure there's a story there, I just, I don't know it. So, when the three men arrived, they were surprised to see 42-year-old flight engineer Auburn Calloway was already on board. Uh, he was dressed in uniform, and he was deadheading. So, a perk of 
flying with the company was free flights to a destination if there was room on board. And I think in passenger planes and in cargo planes, this is also another way to get flight crew from one destination to another. Sometimes I think you're being paid to deadhead and other times you could just use it as a perk for vacation. Hopefully I have that right. Was this something that you were able to do? Well, yeah, deadhead is, it's very common. I even was sent once uh, deadhead on a former private chat of Niki Lauda. That was fun because we had <gasps> no. a plane that was stranded in Egypt. The flight crew was already over the, the work time limit and we had to pick them up. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm jealous. I've never been on a private jet. That's amazing. Well, I did a lot of deadhead uh, once in Amadeus class to Singapore. And then the cheap tickets, well, it's usually deadhead is really when you're sent for work. And if you're just going on a private trip, but you, you can sit on a jump seat and have cheaper tickets, it's called standby tickets because you on, only get on board if there's space available. Right. Whereas they'll bump you if they're deadheading somebody sometimes. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. I have to say, I mean, it's fun to have these perks, but when the plane is fully booked and you're going on a long-range flight to Australia on a jump seat, that's not <laughs> the best of time I ever had. <laughs> yeah, I could see. And this was a cargo plane, so all I think all they had were jump seats, right? Well, so I have a photo that I believe is correct, and yes, the fourth seat does look like a jump seat. So if you imagine, I'll, I'll post a photo, but... If you imagine the cockpit, so you've got your two pilots sitting side by side at the very front, and then behind the pilot on the right is basically another pilot seat, and that is where the engineer sits, and he's got, or she, has a ton of instruments as well. And in some of the photos, it looks like the engineer can either face to the right, so facing where the instruments are, or they can swivel their chair to face front. And when I've seen photos, it almost looks like they're sort of behind and between the other two pilots when they swivel. If you were in a car, it would be like sitting in the middle seat in the back row, if that makes sense. And then next to him, behind the pilot on the left, is the jump seat. So there's room for four people in the cockpit. Hopefully that makes sense, and I will post photos. I'm very sorry also to any of the airplane aficionados I've, if I've gotten any of this wrong. Most of my personal flight knowledge comes from being wedged in coach, with a few notable exceptions we can talk about afterward. So Auburn Calloway, he'd just gotten on board in his uniform with just a guitar case, and he let the others know that he was going to be in the jump seat. He was almost assigned crew for this flight, but he'd exceeded the number of hours he was allowed to fly uh, within a certain time just the day before. So yeah, the situation you were in where you got to go on the private jet to Egypt, uh, same thing that Calloway was going through. He just exceeded his hours, so it was a different crew. They begin their pre-check, and engineer Andy Peterson, he noticed that the circuit breaker for the plane's cockpit voice recorder was turned to the off position. So he switches it back to on, and he continues his inspection. Part of the inspection required him to exit the plane and inspect things on the outside, like, I'm actually just guessing here, I'm going to say the landing gear and the flaps and the wings and plane things. Yeah, so he does that. He goes around the plane, the exterior, everything's great. And when he gets back on board, he sees that the fuse for the voice recorder has been switched off again. And now he's worried about it because if this doesn't work, they don't fly. And not only do they not fly, but 
it means huge delays for everyone, right? Because it's a giant cargo plane, absolutely filled to capacity, and they would have to unload, you know, it would be a whole thing. Fortunately, he was able to keep it in the on position long enough to satisfy himself that it was just some kind of fluke, and it was now working properly. So, eventually, all of the pre-flight checks were completed and found to be sound, and the plane lifts off the ground in Memphis, headed for San Jose. And everything was normal until about 30 minutes into the flight at an altitude of around 19,000 feet or 5,791.2 meters. And that is when Calloway opens up his guitar case. And if you're remembering that time I was forced to listen to a tour bus driver give us a harmonica concert, (laughs) sadly, that's not the way this is going. It's infinitely worse. There's no harmonica in that guitar case. Even worse, there's no guitar in that guitar case. This was before 9-11, and flight crew didn't go through any kind of security, so nobody knew that there wasn't a guitar in the case, and inside instead were several framing hammers that weighed about 20 pounds, so a little over 9 kilograms each, so really heavy hammers, a couple of small sledgehammers, a knife, and a spear gun. It's crazy to think about it nowadays. But yeah, when I was a flight attendant, I started in March of 2001 and I was a flight attendant until March of 2006, so five years exact, which means I just started out six months prior to 9-11. And yeah, we were not checked before going on board at our home base, but also most of the time, not even at other airports. It's unbelievable nowadays. Like The difference, yeah. So different. Then after 9-11 happened and all the things went on and later we had to go through metal detectors to go even in our home base building. Yeah. Uh, So this guitar case must have been pretty heavy. So heavy, right? But Calloway, he is a a big, strong man. So he is six foot two inches. So he's tall. He's a tall man, very muscular. He's also former Navy and he's a black belt martial artist. Before anyone in the crew even realized that they were under attack, Calloway struck Peterson, the engineer, with repeated blows to the head with a framing hammer. Uh, First Officer Tucker was flying in the right-hand seat of the DC-10. He hears some sort of noise, and it's, of course, Andy getting hit in the head, but he doesn't know that, so he looks back to see what that weird sound is, and he was hit with a hammer blow that was so hard it penetrated his skull, driving fragments of his skull into his brain and knocking him unconscious. Next, Calloway makes a move at Captain Sanders, but Sanders is now the last to be attacked, so he's more aware of what's going on, and he's fighting him off. And he's also taking blows to the head, but while this battle is going on between the captain and Calloway, it gives Andy Peterson and Jim Tucker a little bit of time to regain consciousness. Now, all three of the pilots have been hit with the hammer several times in the head, but they don't just stay down. So suddenly, Calloway runs to the back of the plane, and he grabs the spear gun. And now he's pointing a spear gun at the men, shouting, sit down, this is a real gun, and I'll kill you. But what I haven't mentioned yet is that the flight crew were also Navy veterans. Captain Sanders was a highly experienced naval pilot and first officer James Tucker. He's also former Navy. And a naval combat instructor, to be exact. Even though he's losing feeling and control on the right side of his body, he realizes that he can use the plane as a weapon. And so he pulls that plane into a steep 
climb, which made Calloway lose his footing, and he, as well as Sanders and Peterson, all fall into the back, out of the cockpit, and into the cargo area, where a massive struggle ensues. And they're in bad shape. None of them actually understand how badly injured they are, but Tucker knows that none of them are going to have much time. He knows that things are are really bad. So he banks the plane hard to one side, then to another, and he is banking to like 90 degrees very erratically, which is making the men in the back weightless and then pinning them into place with G-forces. He's just basically trying to keep Callaway from killing any of them. And so now he's suddenly performing wartime aerial evasion maneuvers with this massive wide-body DC-10 that was neither built nor tested for any of this kind of stuff. Eventually... Tucker takes the plane out of autopilot and barrel rolls a fully loaded 500,000 pound plane almost completely upside down at over 400 miles an hour, which is passing the safe speed limit of 430 in this particular plane. And then he maneuvers that plane into a very steep dive while they're still fucking upside down. But his own severe injuries, the G-forces are impacting him as well. And now he's really lost all use of the right side of his body. And it's really hard to pull out of that dive on his own. He's only got half of his body working. The other control is locked and he can't reach it. And they're plummeting to the ground upside down, passing 500 miles an hour, which is 805 kilometers an hour. And then it speeds higher than the speedometer on the instrument panel can measure. The plane is shaking, the wings and elevators are stressed, they're fluttering, everything is fucking rattling all over the place, but it holds. And he's finally able to get the throttle with his left arm, reaching across, pulls the plane back up, and gets out of that dive. And he calls for help. In the meantime, Captain Sanders and Andy Peterson are in the back, fighting off Calloway, and they're able to get one of the hammers, and they hit Calloway and knock him out. Or so they think, because he pops back up like the fucking slasher in a horror film, and he's coming back at them again. And at times, they had to put the plane on autopilot, and all three members of the crew are fighting with Calloway, desperately trying to restrain him, and there's just no one's in the cockpit, no one's flying the plane. Air traffic control at one point is trying to radio them back and there's just dead air for what must have felt like forever because all three were fighting Callaway in the back. And remember, they all have pretty severe head trauma. But then the captain gets the hammer away from Callaway and hits him enough to subdue him. I think he might have thought he'd killed him, actually. And they're able to call Memphis Air Traffic Control again. And this time it's Captain Sanders. He tells them the situation and he requests assistance on landing. And he also has to ask for help finding Memphis because they're so injured that they're struggling to stay conscious, much less figure out where they are, and also they need to fly this plane. So we'll play some of that audio for you now. I believe the first officer that you'll hear is Officer Tucker, and that's just after he performed the barrel roll and dive. And then there's silence with air traffic control trying to call them back. I think they've then edited out a long period of silence, but then you'll hear air traffic control trying to hail them, and Captain Sanders will then come on. He's now flying the plane while his crewmates are trying to keep Callaway restrained. So here is some of that audio. Aircraft with emergency, go ahead. Aircraft with emergency, say again. To me. Aircraft with emergency, say again. Express 705. Not been wounded. We've had an attempted 
over on board the airplane. Give me a vector, please. Back to Memphis at this time. Hurry. Star says 705, flighting 095, direct Memphis. Give me advice, where is Memphis? Express 705, uh, flighting of uh, 090 and uh, the airport's at 43 miles, 12 o'clock. Same my direction to Memphis. Uh, Express 705, you're uh, eastbound at this time, and it'll be about uh, 1231 o'clock. Look, just keep talking to me, okay? Okay, we need an ambulance, and uh, we need uh, armed intervention as well. Alert the uh, airport facility. Express 705, we have an emergency. He's turning back direct Memphis. He had an attempted takeover. He is wounded at this time. He's had an attempted takeover? Affirmative. He's uh, north of Forest City by about eight miles at this time. He's at okay. 1,000 descending to 1,000. Okay, radar contact. And uh, you put him on 19-1. Uh, 19-1. Yeah. Express 705, heavy Memphis, out of here. Express 705, heavy Memphis, out of here. Memphis, uh, can you hear me? Uh, is this Express 705 Heavy? 705, yes. Uh, 705 Heavy, uh, Memphis, Roger, I do hear you. You can proceed direct Memphis if able. Expect runway 9 the altimeter is 3029. You understand we're declaring an emergency. We need security to meet the airplane. We'll stop it on the runway or we can. Express 705 Heavy, affirmative. All that's been taken care of. Express 705 Heavy, verify uh, situation still under control. Well, it's sort of under control. I'm coming around to uh, 36 left. Okay, Express 705 Heavy, runway 36 left. Clear to land, clear visual approach 36 left. You are clear to land. The wind is 050 at 8. Okay. You'll notice that air traffic control doesn't repeat back that they have a hijacking or ask any other questions. And I guess this is intentional because air traffic control doesn't really know what's happening on board and they don't want to risk letting the hijackers know that there's an armed response team waiting for them to land. Mm. They're just, it's the smart way to do it. So yeah, that's makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So if you're wondering why they weren't, you know, what's happening? Is everyone okay? That's why. And I think now is a good spot to pause really quickly for a quick word by this week's sponsor, Best Fiends. And I think I'm catching up to you. I'm at level 564 now. What do you say? <laughs> oh, that's in the clouds, right? The cloud levels? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just couldn't stop lately. The design of the bugs, you know, they're so cute. Helping me to relax a bit. And time just flies by whenever I sit down to fight the slugs, which are cute too. And I almost feel bad. I know. Oh, but they're going to eat all your plants, so it has to be done. And you're definitely <laughs> catching up to me. Yeah, I love all the in-game events that are happening right now. They always have different challenges. And right now there's an Easter challenge, and there's like a Mad Hatter Tea Party challenge, which you know I'm loving. Plus, as always, catching and defeating those garden slugs, it's just so satisfying. And I just found a new bug in a crate that I opened with, you know, the keys. Now I'm trying to get that sucker leveled up. I love the two, training the bugs, leveling them up. <laughs> See what they can do. Uh, yeah. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. 
So they need to land the plane, and it's way too heavy to do this safely. Remember, it's still got all of that cargo, it's fully loaded, and it's full of the fuel that it would have burned up flying to California. And so all this extra weight is going to make it really hard to stop the plane on the runway once they land, but the captain doesn't have anywhere safely to dump the fuel, and they're coming in way too hot for the runway. So yet more impressive aerial maneuvers are made in order to reach that longer runway, and land the plane safely. It's absolutely amazing, honestly. And an article for the State Aviation Journal by Penny Rafferty Hamilton, Captain Sanders is quoted as saying, quote, Committed to land, I had to fly the airplane. I flew the airplane as fast as I could safely. All my training told me to fly below 210 knots, but not knowing how the hand-to-hand fighting would come out, I knew I was coming in high. I only heard one warning alarm in those final minutes because I was focused on getting us all down safely. If you listen to the cockpit tapes today, warning alarms are blaring. The controllers had given us runway 9. Heavily loaded with fuel and cargo with lots of airspeed, I requested the longer 36 runway. They gave it to me. After we landed, the emergency responders had to climb into the airplane via the escape ladder and emergency slide. It took them a while to get on board. End quote. And then there was another article for Commercial Appeal by Max Garland. And in that one, Captain Sanders is quoted as saying, quote, Quite honestly, we never saw ourselves as heroes. It is our Navy training that allowed us to see what our limitations were in an airplane. It's like a race car driver knowing how close he can get to the wall. End quote. Yeah, they're totally heroes. So they deployed the emergency slides, and as he said, it takes some time for the SWAT team to climb up the ladder, and when they do, it's a bloodbath. Absolute bloodbath. Captain Sanders is quoted as saying, quote, After they finally got in, they asked me, who is the bad guy? I pointed to Calloway. They handcuffed him and asked me to stand on the chain so that they could take care of Jim and Andy. Andy had no pulse and was near death from blood loss. After they got Andy and Jim in ambulances, I went into the cockpit. I found my glasses, which were only slightly damaged. I put them in my pocket just in case the FAA needed me to sign something. When I got down from the plane, I was about to get into the ambulance, and they asked me to give it to the hijacker. You know, they say how you deal with change is a measure of character. To be part of Federal Express and an aviation team is to be bigger than you are. It enhances your life. It is a life changer, Sanders concluded. End quote. He did give that seat to the hijacker. Engineer Andy Peterson was the most injured. He had a fractured jaw, a fractured skull, which had severed his temporal artery, causing massive blood loss. As you heard earlier, when they first reached him, he had no pulse, so it's a miracle that he survived. Pilot Jim Tucker, who had flown all those incredible aerial maneuvers, his jaw was dislocated, his skull was fractured, causing permanent motor control issues on his right side, and his face was a mess because Calloway had tried to gouge out one of his eyes, causing him to permanently lose some of the vision in that eye. He was also stabbed repeatedly in his right arm. This part made me, it made me cry when I first read it. So he was talking about how at first he could remember all of the call signs of the airports all around the world, but he couldn't remember the names of his children. It's just, 
Oof. So both of them had a lot of surgeries and long hospital stays and uh, lots of physical therapy and hopefully uh, psychiatric therapy as well, but I'm not sure about that one. Captain Sanders was a little bit better off. Uh, he also suffered, obviously, traumatic brain injury, several deep gashes or stab wounds, and they more or less had to reattach his right ear. But I think he was able to go home later that night while his co-workers did have to spend a rather long time in the hospital. I know that Cal Calloway was also seriously injured. I'm frankly, I'm amazed they didn't kill him. These men are really our heroes. It's unbelievable how these men must have been fighting that I guy. Know. <laughs> Do you know how at the end of action movies, when all is over and all seems to be well, I have to tell you a little secret. I'm the person who always thinks about all the injuries the characters now probably have and how much time they will spend in the hospital recovering. <laughs> It's fun. I'm fun. I'm a fun no, person. No, I'm the same. I'm exactly the same. In fact, I just did it to Paul last night. We caught the tail end of the movie Dodgeball. We watched like the last half of it. And during the, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball scene. I turned to Paul and I was like, he would never get up from that. And Paul's looking at me like, we're not watching a documentary. This is Dodgeball. But yeah, I do. I'm exactly the same. It's like no one's going to recover from a wrench to the face. Ugh. I'm glad I'm not alone with that. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but in all seriousness, that was unbelievable. The flight maneuvers these guys did. It's amazing. Amazing. It's, yeah. yeah. Do we know what was the hijacker planning to do? Like, why? Why did he hijack the FedEx plane from yeah. the company he was working for? That makes, I know. Okay. Make it make sense. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, but we'll repeat again for people with memories like mine. So Callaway also worked for FedEx and he was also former Navy. The problem was that it seems in order to get the FedEx job, he had lied in his resume about the number of hours he'd flown. I don't know if it was the number of hours he'd flown in the Navy or the number of hours he'd flown at a previous job, but he'd lied about the number of hours. So obviously this is a problem. So FedEx had caught on to this and Callaway was scheduled to have a disciplinary hearing about this the day after the hijacking. And he was absolutely certain that this was going to lead to him being fired. And if he was fired, he would probably never work in commercial aviation again. He also, um, based on some of the things I read and, you know, I'm not 100% on on this aspect, but it seems like he was one of these people who kept track of every single slight and every single insult and every single perceived injustice done to him throughout the course of his life. He may have been a bit paranoid about feeling that he was being treated unfairly, both in the Navy and by FedEx, I think. And I'm certain that as a black man, he did experience far more injustice than he should have. But we can all agree that this was not the answer, you know, this kind of plan. Okay, so it was retaliation. Yes and no. It was retaliation because his plan, his ultimate plan, was... Yes, he always wanted to hijack the plane. Initially, he thought he'd be the assigned engineer, and he was only going to have to kill two of his co-pilots. One of the things I read said, and it would have been easier because one of them was a woman, but yeah, fuck that. But because he exceeded his hours, and I believe he had only exceeded those hours by like literally one hour, um, but that meant a new flight crew. So he was now going to have to go as an extra passenger and kill three people instead of two. And then his plan was to crash the plane, which was filled with 38,000 kilos, so almost 84,000 pounds of fuel, into the FedEx hub in Memphis, killing who knows how many people that could have killed. It's... 
a lot. And he felt that this would hopefully destroy the company he felt was out to get him. Uh, So when the flight engineer, Andy Peterson, noticed that he'd turned off the voice recorder switch, he didn't realize, of course, at the time that that's what had happened. Why would you ever think that someone was intentionally sabotaging, right, in your own crew? So when Andy Peterson caught on to that aspect of things, his new plan was basically the old plan, except that once he'd killed everybody, he was going to have to fly the plane for about another half hour to overwrite the tape on the cabin voice recorder. That wouldn't work today. Cockpit voice recorders, I think, record for a lot longer now. Okay, so he thought they'd never know which of the four men on board was the responsible one, or they would never find out what really went on board. Exactly. Yeah, he was planning to die by suicide this way. And that's why he hit them with the hammers. He hadn't brought a gun because blunt force injuries would be consistent with plane crash injuries during an autopsy, if there were any remains to even recover. Yeah, they would have gone up in a fireball. Exactly. Yeah. The other reason he had, which was when I said yes and no for retaliation, is he had apparently taken out a lot of life insurance on himself. I've read numbers from the hundreds of thousands all the way up to 2.5 million in life insurance with his daughters as beneficiaries. He'd also liquidated most of his assets and sent them to his ex-wife. They did find suicide notes. The only positive thing that I can say about Calloway, I would say that this guy clearly loved his kids very much. He really wanted to make sure that they would go to college and that they would have money to go to college. He thought he was about to lose his job and lose his only way to support his children. And I do think it's possible that he might have actually believed that his death was the best way to secure, you know, a college education and a life for his kids. It's just such a damn shame he felt he needed to kill so many other people in the process. That's where you lose the sympathy you had for him. If you can say one nice thing about a person, I'd I'd say he definitely loved his kids. And what happened to him after they arrested him? So he tried to plead temporary insanity, but that did not work. And on August 15th, 1995, Auburn Calloway was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences for attempted murder and attempted air piracy. He is in federal prison and he will not be getting any parole. He'll die in prison. He did appeal to President Obama for a pardon, but he did not receive a pardon. The letter he wrote is in our sources. If you want to read it, I'm not going to give him any more airtime. The crew was awarded with the gold medal award for heroism, which is the highest award a civilian pilot can receive. Sadly, because of the severe injuries that all of the pilots sustained, none of them were able to return to commercial aviation. Jim Tucker, however, he is the former Navy combat flight instructor. He met the regulations for light sport flying, and so he was able to fly again and even went on to teach his son Andy how to fly in a Luscom 8A. And because it's been harder to find information on the other surviving pilots. I think they prefer to remain a little bit more private, and so we wish them and their families well. I think most of them moved out of the area so they didn't have to be so near the FedEx hub and see the FedEx planes so often, which is something that I understand completely. And they saved, we can't even know how many lives they saved that day, not just their own. And the plane was repaired and went on to fly for FedEx for years afterward. Yeah, there's a good article I'll link to in my sources that talks a little bit about afterward, and there's there's some photos I'll post of a reunion they had. But yeah, that is the story of the hijacking of FedEx Flight 705. That's amazing. Never yeah. heard that story, even though I was a flight attendant. I'm glad you, you told me this story. Good. I'm, I'm glad you liked mm. it. 
it's just amazing to me how, oh, what those men went through. So much. So, all right. I'm sure you must have a fun story about your, your days as a, what do we call, is it flight attendant now? Yeah, yeah flight attendant. Okay. Because it was steward and stewardess. Yeah, that's frowned upon now for many tickets. Yeah, it's a flight attendant now. Fun stories. Oh, Jesus, let me think. Um, <laughs> I've put you on the spot. Okay, uh, one of my favorite stories is so on the 777, we had a resting compartment. It looks like a toilet door. And when you open it, you either go upstairs or downstairs, depending on the model that Ooh, you're on. Stairs. It's like um, a cargo container that you go downstairs to. Okay. So at this flight, it was it was the downstairs resting compartment. And then when you go downstairs, you have like six to eight sleeping pods. Like there, it was six sleeping pods, I think. It looks pretty much like one of these Japanese pod hotels, you know what I mean? You crawl yeah, into definitely. them and you have these little curtains. Okay. So on a long range flight, you get to rest somewhere between one and three hours, depending on the flight time and if it's a day or night flight and how many crew members are there, you know. Okay, so this was a night flight. Uh, I had just been resting for a couple of hours and I climbed upstairs. I opened the door that leads to the cabin and a guy was standing in front of me waiting patiently in front of the door because it's always locked and you know yeah nobody wants a passenger standing downstairs no that's creepy and so the guy was standing in front of me and he, he had a towel over his arm and he <laughs> says well he wants to take a shower now too because he thought that the crew had a fully equipped hotel room down there no who brings a towel where did he get the towel from i don't know <laughs> Well, I've never been on a plane with an upstairs or a downstairs that I can remember. My sister, I think, just flew on her first one when she went to Thailand last year. She was supposed to be in Thailand this week. But I, yeah, one of these days I'll get on one of the planes with an upstairs. But for my first wedding, so my first wedding was in 2004 and we were getting married in England because my late husband at the time, he still had both of his grandmas were alive and I had no grandparents living and Basically, it was easier. My whole family could make it to England, but his whole family couldn't make it to, to the United States. So great, we'll get married in England. I was looking for tickets for our flight over for the wedding. And on one of these popular second party websites where you can, you know, buy your plane tickets cheaper, they had the price for a coach ticket for first class. So I called and I said, I think there's a problem here. And they said, well, as, as long as it's a published fair on our website, then we'll honor it. So I was like, great. So it was the week the Concorde was ending. And I think that was actually part of it. More on that later. So I booked it. I called everyone we knew that was coming over for the wedding and told them. And so my dear friend April, who I mentioned in the Halloween episode, um, she and her husband were the other ones who also snagged that fair. Then there was like a seven month battle with the travel website and British Airways just for months and months and months. And they said that my ticket was for the Concorde. And so it was really a coach ticket. Can you imagine saying flying the Concorde was the same <laughs> as a coach ticket? And so I was like, that's fine. Great. We would be more than pleased to fly the Concorde. And then they'd say, well, the Concorde is out of commission. And I said, well, then the first class ticket is perfectly reasonable. And they would say, no, it's the same as coach. This went on for seven months. I wish it was the Concorde. I'm still mad that that plane isn't 
used anymore. But in the end, we won. And it's the first time I've ever flown real first class. We had like those lay flat seat pods and three course meals with filet mignon. And it was post 9-11. So we had Waterford Crystal and China and like real like silver utensils, except for also then a plastic butter knife was the only knife (laughs) that we could use. And April and her husband, they also got the flights. And on their way home from the UK, they were in the lounge with Liam Neeson and his now late wife, Natasha Richardson. My sister Lucy and her family, they use points to upgrade when they come here. And so they're always in those fancy lounges. She, She saw Chris Helmsworth once. Yeah, that's the only time I've ever flown proper, real first class, and it was pretty great. My wedding dress had its own seat. We've done mint on JetBlue once. We saved our miles up, and we're saving our miles again, so when they hopefully will start flying to the UK or the EU. I have another great story, because you mentioned first class. So I used to to work in Amadeus class most of the time, which was our business class. We don't, in Austrian Airlines there, or Lauda Air back then, there is no first class. But the Amadeus class, it has pretty much first class service. It just doesn't have sleeping pods or you can't recline all the way, but it's I'd say it's like a, a mix between first and business. It's pretty good. It's good. It sounds good. I love that it's called Amadeus. Did anyone during turbulence ever yell out, rock me Amadeus? <laughs> <laughs> no, just me. All right. Sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> So for service, like we always used to have a chef with us. Uh, we, we came with a starter trolley, arranging the chosen dishes right in front of the passengers. It's really, it's it's a lovely service. Lovely. Yeah. yeah I, I love to work Amadeus class. So this was on a night flight from Singapore to Vienna. And most of the passengers, you know, they're sleeping. And I'm walking through the Amadeus part of the cabin to see if any passenger needs something. And the lady stops me and she asks me if she could borrow the chef's apron. So the male flight attendants and the chef, they used to wear these long white aprons, you know, like in super fancy high class restaurants. Sure. And I told her, I'm sorry, that's not possible, but maybe I can bring her something else and what she would need the apron for. And she told me that the temperature in the cabin was way too hot and that she needs to undress <laughs> and use the apron as a cover up. No. So yeah, I told her, I'm sorry, but that's it's just not possible. But that I will go and check the temperature <laughs> of the cabin for her to see if I can lower it a bit. And please trust me, especially during a night flight, it's pretty cold. It's in freezing. The cabin. Yeah. yeah. I swear to God. I walk past her 15 minutes later and she's in her seat only in her bra and panties. <laughs> no. Covering up with a thin, tiny airplane blankets. You know, no. legs spread <gasps> using the safety card as a fan. <laughs> oh. I don't know. I think she had hot flashes or she something. She must like have that. been having hot flashes. So it was dark. We decided to let her be for a while because, you know. <laughs> I'm glad you let her be. That woman was clearly going through a thing. There was something, <laughs> something was happening there where, uh, that's, I'm dead. That's amazing. <laughs> I can't believe it. Did I ever tell you that I once got moved from economy to business class because of my knitting needles? Uh, no. <laughs> so after my first husband, Adam, died, anytime there was a really good last minute flight to the UK, I would just book it and go over to see his family. And so on one of these flights, I was waiting in line at security at Logan Airport. And there was a man in flight attendant uniform, clearly running very late. And he was like 10 or 15 people behind me. And you could see that I could just tell that he was stressed. And so I said, do you want to jump ahead of me? And he was like, thank you so much. Yes, please. 
So no problem. Don't even think any more about it because I had loads of time. So I get on board. We, I'm in a middle seat in coach because, again, I book last minute because it was cheaper and I could afford it. I take out my knitting, which I was working with double-pointed needles. If you're not a knitter, double-pointed needles are – how do I even just – oh, I could post a picture. They're small. And they have pointy, they're pointy on both sides. And you work with several of them at a time when you're knitting in a circle. So like socks or hats or whatever it might be. And so these were, these were such, I was working with lace weight yarn. So think a little bit thicker than thread. And so the needles I was working with were just, just a hair thicker than a, than a sturdy toothpick. Okay. And they're made of bamboo. And so I pull out my knitting and my double pointed needles, which I mean, Double-pointed needles are admittedly not the best thing to use on a flight because it's a little bit like wrestling with an octopus, but it was the project I had. And the guy (laughs) next to me on the aisle says, how did you get those on board? And I was like, pardon? And he was like, they let you on board with those knitting needles? And I said, yeah, they're, it's perfectly legal to fly with these. And he says to me, well, I don't feel very safe looking at you using those. And I was like, I point to the pen he's doing a crossword puzzle with. And I was like, I think your pen is probably more dangerous. I can think of lots of easy ways to kill someone with a pen, but these things break pretty easily. And uh, they're also very expensive. So I'm not stabbing anyone with one of my double-pointed needles. Don't worry, you're fine. So now he's really pissed off and huffy. So he calls the flight attendant. And oh, hey, it's my friend from the security line who I let go ahead of me. (laughs) And he listens to this man rant and rave for a solid five minutes about how unsafe he feels because of my toothpick-sized knitting needles. And um, he says, oh, I completely understand. I'm so sorry. And he's like, ma'am, would you come with me, please? And I said, okay. And that guy got to watch me walk right up and through the little curtain into business class. So that was pretty sweet. (laughs) It kind of made my flight. But yeah, it's uh, it's good times. So that's it. We've probably blathered on long enough. So I'd say we're wrapping it up here. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Annie, for telling this story. To our listeners, please take a moment, if you can, to leave us a quick review. Just a quick one. Just super quick. Just make an inside joke. Two-word review. No problem. We really appreciate it. Come say hi in our Facebook group. Uh, follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Twitter. Please do us a favor. Say hi to your pets for us. Oh, we really do send them the warmest regards. Go check out our homepage, www.freshhellpodcast.com or send us an email at freshhellpodcast at gmail.com. On our webpage, you find the links to all of our sources. You find the links to our voicemail that you can leave to our merch store if you want to buy a t-shirt or a mug. Yeah. Absolutely. And until next week, if you're going through hell, and these days, most of us are, keep going. Choose. Hoorah, Navy. Navy.